The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Donald Trump has put the lives of tens of thousands of American servicemen and women at risk all around the world by stealing those documents. Donald Trump does not give a damn if American troops live or die. Donald Trump hates the troops. So why aren't we hearing that? It is not the number of Republicans and Trump cultists who are prostituting themselves for Trump that shocks It is the number who aren't. His former Attorney General William Barr, the quote you know, if even half of it is true, then he's toast. Former U.S. Attorney and Fox News contributor Andy McCarthy, if they can prove half of it, he's toast. I sense an image theme. New Hampshire Governor John Sununu, if even half of this stuff is true, he's in real trouble. And it's self-inflicted. The National Review. The Trump indictment is damning. It is impossible not to be appalled. Jonathan Turley. Wait, Jonathan Turley? Jonathan Turley? It is an extremely damning indictment. Tim Parlatori, who was still a Trump attorney last month. It appears to be a pretty strong indictment. Jim Trusty and John Rowley, who were still Trump attorneys last Friday. They quit. And Scott Jennings, the rabid, cartoonish CNN conservative. I seriously doubt you're going to hear a serious person say, oh, well, this is fine. And then Jennings hit a point which in normal times would have been enough for the Republicans to have already unanimously and irrevocably thrown Trump overboard for all time. Quote, if you had a son or a daughter who was serving in a hostile place and you thought maybe their information was in a document that could have been picked off the friggin' floor, do you know how this could impact a military family? The thing is, when you're commander-in-chief, you have this responsibility to the military and the people who serve. It's sort of offensive to me, actually, that we would be so cavalier with the information that could possibly put our people in jeopardy. And if there is anything more shocking than the number of anti-Trump statements, especially from his supporters and from his lawyers, it is the fact that in normal times, the Democrats would have taken the essence of Scott Jennings' point. Trump put the lives of thousands of American servicemen and women at risk, and they would have hung that fact around the necks of not just Trump and everybody close to him, but around the necks of every Republican who did not condemn him. And the Democrats would be screaming, why does Donald Trump hate the troops? And why does Ron DeSantis hate the troops? And why does Lindsey Graham hate the troops? And if the point itself were not decisive enough, the Democrats could follow that up with a new CBS News poll that asks, is there a national security risk if Trump kept nuclear and military documents? And the answer was yes. Trump 
put our national security at risk. Yes, from 38% of Republicans. And why aren't we hearing Democrats say that? Why in the chorus of the sheep bleating about Trump's rights to do this and Hillary Clinton that and weaponization everything, why are virtually all of the publicly dissenting voices Republicans? Where are the Democrats? Where are the Democrats talking about the grave risk Trump was and is to national security? that 38% of Republicans agree with Democrats on? Where are the Democrats demanding that he will be president again only over their dead bodies? Where are the Democrats saying no matter how this trial turns out, Trump definitely put American troops at risk for the sake of his ego, and he may have gotten American troops killed for all we know, and he may still get American troops killed tomorrow. Where is the outrage? Axios is reporting the Democratic National Committee asked Democrats in the Congress to no comment the indictment. The president is no commenting the indictment. The entire hierarchy of the Democratic Party is staying off stage because of some kind of nonsensical 1975 alive notion that to speak out against Trump's criminality and treachery and treason is to somehow grasp a third rail that because if you speak up for truth and honesty and Americanism and you are a politician, you have somehow politicized truth and honesty and Americanism. Mr. President, House Democrats, Senate Democrats, leadership Democrats, we elected you to stand up for the rule of law. We elected you to defeat Trump and destroy Trump and jail whatever was left of Trump. We expect you to speak up for justice and we want you to demonize the Republicans and we demand that you cut up Jim Jordan and Elise Stefanik and Mike Pence and these other disloyal, opportunistic, amoral bastards because there are only Republicans saying anything right now and all of you Democrats hiding in the back have completely lost the plot of America. Somewhere, somebody in the White House to whom Joe Biden listens, thinks that to speak is to authenticate the Republican claim that this is all just to keep Trump from the White House. God damn it. It is just to keep Trump from the White House. Traitors do not belong in the White House. And if, Democrats, you somehow think that your silence is going to make Trump voters or Republican apologists or anybody else think, oh, we're wrong. This isn't political. We feel great shame. We must mend our ways. We must turn the party over to the real future of the 21st century GOP. Asa Hutchinson, I have bad news for you. They are not fleeing from Trump. They are not going to be reasonable. They are not suddenly going to negotiate. They are not acting in good faith now. And they are not going to see your silence as anything but squalid weakness. And to reinforce to their mob and their cult that the reason Democrats are silent is that Democrats know this is all political. And the Democrats' silence is, in fact, the Democrats' guilt. President Biden, you are not having a shot with Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill tonight. They are dead. That Republican Party is as dead as they are. And the people who have seized the brand name Republican Party now recognize that this is an existential fight for both the soul of and control of this nation. Either the Democrats and democracy prevail or the Republicans and fascism will. It cannot be both. And standing back and hoping that your silence conveys the gravity of the charges is at best naive and at worst irresponsible. Trump has been knocked to the floor by these indictments. And you do not need every Republican leader and every Republican voter to back away from him in order to defeat the plague that is MAGA. One 
or 2% of Republicans breaking with that cult for good is enough to give the Democrats the House, the Senate, and the White House again next year, but you are not going to win them over with dignified, quiet scorn. The Republicans are a party of bullies consumed by murderous and violent fantasies. Trump is metaphorically on the ground. Now is the time to metaphorically destroy his reputation with just enough Republicans, only just enough Republicans, and to do so by using metaphorical baseball bats. I had to do a two-day deposition in my lawsuit after Al Gore and his business partner tried to stiff me on the rest of my contract once they had finally arranged to sell current TV to Al Jazeera. My lawyers gave me a thousand pieces of great advice, but the best of them was this. Their lawyers are going to ask you to read some of your own emails out loud onto the record and other statements onto the record. Do not explain them. Do not shrink from them. Do not mumble them. Do not butt them. Proclaim them as proudly as if they were the greatest thing you ever did or said. Sure enough, there came the hour on the second day, I think, where they handed me one of my one-paragraph emails to my agent. Fifty words, perhaps, all about Gore's partner and half of them obscenities. The nicest part was when I called him a little Jiminy Cricket pest bastard. I read that onto the record like I was reading Shakespeare. Trump is the worst political figure in American history. Trump is the worst criminal in American history. Trump is the worst individual threat to representative government in American history. And now he's been indicted. 37 counts. And for all we know, 37 more counts to come about January 6th and 37 more counts to come about bilking money out of his cult. We have hundreds of miles to go, but we have started down this road. Democrats, stop shying from the reality. This scumbag should never live another day free in his life. Proclaim it. Exult in it. For once, it is not just the ethical power that is in your hands. You have the hammer of justice. Take the hammer of justice and use it to hit Trump and everybody who lies for him. And God damn it, sing the national anthem while you do it. Because this is where we are. Democrats are being quiet because that's exactly the right play during a time in which the only thing Republicans understand is noise. Politico asked Trump about taking a plea deal, and he said he did not anticipate doing so, but, quote, he left open the possibility of doing so, quote, where they pay me some damages. That's what he thinks a plea deal is in this. Trump said, and you know this is how he actually thinks, that after the indictment, America went to sleep with tears in its eyes, and I thought, yeah, tears of laughter. The only thing missing from this string of illogic with which he still manages to keep his suckers hypnotized like cats jumping at feathers is the argument that the documents were secure at Mar-a-Lago because who would ever be willing to go inside Donald Trump's bathroom? And while the good guys stay silent... Trump is still dog-whistling, still hoping to push the button of stochastic terrorism about Miami in a radio interview with Roger Stone yesterday. Quote, we need strength at this point, and everyone is afraid to do anything. They're afraid to talk, and they have to go out, and they have to protest peacefully. It sounds as if he is implying that it's a shame they had to protest peacefully. Our country has to protest and he is dog-whistling for somebody to physically attack the special counsel and his wife, also to stone, quote, Jack Smith, he's a deranged person. His wife hates me more than he does. The wife hates Trump more than any human being who's ever lived, unquote, to which I say, hold my beer. Three other pieces of business on indictment and arraignment eve. One, Stuart Rhodes the Oath Keeper's gun safety instructor who allegedly shot out his own eye 
called into a right-wing show from prison because you can. His reaction to the Trump document indictments? Wait until you see Trump get indicted for January 6th for the same thing Rhodes and the others were convicted over for January 6th. Rhodes expects Trump to be indicted for conspiracy to prevent Congress from discharging its duties, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, and seditious conspiracy. From your mouth to God's ears, Elmer. Two, it ain't a perp walk, but apparently at the arraignment tomorrow afternoon, this will be the full criminal experience for Donnie. Trump should be walked through and arraigned in a no-frills and very unfriendly Miami federal courthouse. He should be fingerprinted, and he should have a mug shot taken. And three, the photo of the judge assigned to this case. The Trump appointee already tried to derail this last year with the special master nonsense. The photo of Eileen Cannon in her glasses and a team Trump hat and MAGA face paint. That is not Eileen Cannon. That is somebody at a 2020 Trump rally somewhere with similar glasses. Not her. Do not tweet that photo repeating it's not her. So since we're going to live like this for a while, Trump indicted, Trump arraigned, Trump indicted again, Trump arraigned again, let's at least enjoy a few jokes as they pop up. Lauren Windsor, the journalist, noted the photo of the boxes in Trump's bathroom and observed violation of the Espion Edge Act. And from animator Matt Wells, the best parody of the indictment and the Jack Smith indictment form and the whole borderline unbelievable nature of Trump's perfidy. I will quote it in full, and if you don't get it, I will not explain it. As they say, if you know, you know. Quote, 33. On July 21, 2021, when he was no longer president, Trump gave an interview in his office at the Bedminster Club to a writer and a publisher in connection with a then forthcoming book. In the recorded statement, Trump stated that once reinstated as president, he had plans to build a freeway through the Los Angeles neighborhood Toontown by any means, even if it meant flooding the borough with chemical warfare obtained from the Department of Defense. The toxic substance was, in Trump's words, the only way to kill a toon and made up a combination of turpentine, acetone and benzene. This dangerous compound is commonly, colloquially referred to by the DOD as the dip. Okay, I changed my mind. If you did not recognize that, it's basically the plot of the movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Also of interest today, the Glenn Beck provocateur who decided to menace and mock basketball's Brittany Griner in the Dallas airport. We are missing the lead story here. She restrained herself. She did not touch him. And thus, he is still alive today. That's next. This is Countdown. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. 
I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. Slight format shakeup today. Postscripts to the news next, later. So I had a physical Friday with a new doctor, and he said, what did you do to yourself years ago? Did you fall off a cliff or something? And I said, as I always have to say, yeah, kind of, while I was making a TV commercial, like everybody does. Things I promised not to tell. Coming up first, the Daily Roundup. The miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. I did not plan this to be all sports. It just turned out that way. The bronze to this functioning idiot, Alex Stein, who works for Glenn Beck. This Stein decided to confront the basketball player, Brittany Griner, as she and her team, the Phoenix Mercury, walked through the airport in Dallas. She is still trying to readjust after months in a Russian prison as a hostage. So this moron Stein thought it would be funny to record himself asking her if she thought the exchange that brought her home in exchange for arms dealer Victor Boot was fair since she was a killer on the court, but he was a real killer. And then he asked if she'd had sex with Vladimir Putin. Now, I appreciate that Glenn Beck is himself still recovering from his remarkable drug addiction and that he's an amoral buffoon to begin with. But honestly, Beck, you have to save this guy Stein for his own good. Fire him or educate him, because if Brittany Griner was not a pro who could and did restrain herself, she could have just pushed him out of the way and he would be in a coma right now. Speaking of which, the runner-up, Conor McGregor, also not exactly Mr. Stability. McGregor did a bit during the fourth game of the NBA Finals in which he was supposed to pretend to fight with the Miami Heat mascot, Bernie. But of course, McGregor has no control over himself, so when it came time to pretend to throw hands, he knocked Bernie out with one real punch. They took the guy in the Bernie suit to the ER. After treatment, they say Bernie will be back for Game 5 tonight, which could make him the only member of the Heat to actually show up for all five games of the NBA Finals. Moving on, but the winner, Brian Kilmeade, who is, I guess, the comic relief on Fox's morning show. Kilmeade has said some amazingly stupid things over the years. He once tried to criticize interracial marriage by saying, we keep marrying other species. But honestly, this may be the worst. He was talking about Lionel Messi, the soccer star, coming to the United States to play in Major League Soccer here, and Kilmeade bemoaned the fact that the great Messi does not speak English and does not seem inclined to learn English. And he compared that to another famous international star who came to Major League Soccer, David Beckham, 2007. No, seriously, Kilmeade said, quote, One thing about David Beckham, he learned to speak English for us, only with an accent, when he came at 32 years old. This was not a joke. This was not a gag. This was not hyperbole. Brian Kilmeade thinks Beckham, born in London in 1975, had to learn English when he came to America. Now, this is already Hall of Fame-level stupid before you realize that before he went to Fox, quote, news, unquote, Brian Kilmeade was a sportscaster. And not just a sportscaster, his job the year before he went to Fox, Brian Kilmeade was a soccer reporter for coverage of games of Major League Soccer. Brian, yeah, but when are you going to learn English, Brian? Kilmeade, today's worst person in the English-speaking world! Postscripts to the news, some headlines, some updates, some snarks, some predictions, dateline, my house. Minet arrived a year ago yesterday. Now, I know what you're thinking. He's fine. He's in the other room sleeping right now. Minet is nearly 16 years old. 
And late last spring, he was surrendered to American Maltese Association Rescue. And my friend who runs that here texted rhetorically to me, who is going to adopt a nearly 15-year-old dog with dementia? My reply was the hand up emoji. I told you parts of my story with dogs before. I loved them as a kid, but I was allergic, and mom was even more allergic. And for 40 years, the allergists said that whole hypoallergenic dog thing, it's hit and miss. A lot of hearts get broken. A lot of dogs get returned. And then a former girlfriend needed what she called a puppy fix because her family dog was dying. And I finally let her talk me into doing something her dozen predecessors never could, to go in with her to the pet shop, and within minutes... I was in love, and Stevie adopted me, and inside of a month I was calling all of my dog-owning friends and saying to them, why didn't you tell me this was the meaning of life? And concluding that my first 53 years on this earth had been a waste of time. And parenthetically, Stevie is sitting on the floor at my feet as I record this. Soon, the girlfriend and I got Holly and Milo for her parents, and then we got Rose, so Stevie would have a sister, and then we split up, and I kept the dog, so that was a win-win-win. And one day, I met the Maltese rescue leader in a Petco here, and I volunteered to become a foster if they needed one, and before I knew it, she asked me to take a three-month-old with a heart so bad that it was not clear that he would live past ten months. Well, happily... The vets who said they had never seen what was wrong with his heart were compensated for in this equation by the cardiologist at the Animal Medical Center who said that was understandable as a diagnosis, but he operated on this problem like three times a month. And so instead of heartbreak, now Ted is five and a half years old nearly. And the biggest issue with him is he is the most amazing flirt I have ever seen from any species, Brian Kilmeade. If we go to the park and there are girls on a blanket, he is going in. It happened four times on the walk day before yesterday. Also, Ted is also at my feet here sitting next to Stevie. In 2021, it was Mishu whose untreatable heart disease really was untreatable. Mishu had an extraordinarily happy life, but an extraordinarily brief one. And after he died, another litter produced two of his brothers, and I brought them in one after the other to see if they could take his place in my brood, and they were nuts, both of them. Great dogs, but absolute alphas. They bit everybody, including me. And so by summer last year, I had a spot open. I knew I could take care of four dogs at once. I had done it. And anyway, I I didn't have a dog until I was 53. I'm making up for lost time. Mine was one of three Maltese's whose human was a French teacher here. Minet is, in fact, a French word translating as kitty, which must have caused him considerable confusion. In any event, sometime after Minet's 10th birthday, his human, who I I believe was around 85, began to decline rapidly. For the last few years, she was usually able to feed the dogs, but little else. Finally, she went to the hospital, having made no plans for the dogs, and when she did not come back from the hospital, a caring neighbor did what he could for the last survivor, Minet. He fed him. He cleaned him. He walked him now and again. He made preparations to adopt him. And then he got a promotion that required frequent travel. And so with great reluctance, he contacted the rescue organization, and that is how I came to raise my hand. And a year ago yesterday, we met near Central Park, and I saw Minet, a gaunt, but active, healthy-looking dog. One of his eyes was cloudy, but he had a strong, confident gait and absolutely no interaction with humans whatsoever. I picked him up, and he flinched. I sat him on my lap, and he jumped off. And understand, almost all dogs either instinctively warm to human touch or learn its value quickly, but the Maltese will respond to you sitting down by saying, I see you have made me a lap. I will now claim this map forever. The only true conflict I have ever witnessed among my crowd is the territorial brawl over me. I have had four Maltese's squeeze their way onto my seated form in such a jigsaw-like way that they can each claim they are sitting in my lap. Partially. Minet just wasn't present. He'll just be another mouth to feed, I was told. I was also told he was pad-trained. This turned out to be correct. He knows where to go. Sometimes he's standing on the edge of the pad pointed the wrong way, but still not bad, all things considered. He was quiet. He was self-contained. This turned out to be too correct. He was, in fact, when he got here, a Roomba. 
He walked constantly. He established one path through the rooms of my place, and he followed it basically inch by inch for up to an hour at a time. He ate well. He slept well. I never heard a sound out of him. Mostly he wandered, wandered along that one path. And what he was looking for, I don't know, but that path ended at one window that went ceiling to floor, and he stared out that window, and then he would do that walk again. So, hesitantly, I took him out to the park one night, just me and him, to see what would happen, and immediately I recognized an extraordinary difference. Minet was outside, and Minet was serene, and he was no longer wandering. He sat in the grass, and he turned his face to the breeze, and it was the surest sign he was still in there somewhere. Well, my vet checked him over that week and said, look, his teeth are uniformly terrible. They will probably all have to come out. But some of them are in such bad shape that this is urgent. That infection could spread to his nose, to his brains, anywhere in his body. And they're so bad, some of these teeth are going to come out with just a little anesthetic. I can take them out right now, she said, and she did. And honestly, the sound he made was so heartrending. It was the only time in 10 and a half years with dogs that I could not bear it and I had to leave the room. That noise was still ringing in my ear when Minet woke up about three hours later from the anesthetic and he came over and stared at me. I mean, this was a, excuse me, where the hell am I, stare. Within a day, Minet was barking at me when he was hungry. He was sniffing the other dogs. Within a week, he was joining the group meal at the regular hours and knew instinctively when those hours were. It wasn't dementia. It was teeth. Minet got all of his teeth taken out about a month later, and soon when we would go outside, he would sit on the grass or in my arms in complete contentment. And walking? It turned out he was the best walker I have ever seen, let alone had. He knew the entire deal. If I slowed down, he slowed down. If I began to stop, he would stop before I did. And if he started up again and I needed him to stop, I would just say stop and he would. Or if I started up, all I had to do after I realized his first human must have trained him in French, right? All I had to do was say, suive mine, and off he would go. Every meeting with another dog was a respectful, silent sniff. He let strange humans pet him. And now he goes on virtually every walk I take because he immediately syncs up with me or with me and Stevie or with me and Rose or with me and Ted. It was the teeth. There was so much infection that basically all he could do was deal with it and the pain. That's all his tiny body could handle. Once his teeth were gone, he began to eat his soft food lustily. In the year he's been here, he's gone from a too skinny five pounds to a robust eight. He still eats the hard treats, too. A Maltese has a really strong jaw. He gums them, though he does prefer them ground up in a blender, and why not? But about a month after the teeth came out, I saw him do something that made my jaw drop, and I've seen him do it since. He took one of the treats over to his water bowl, and he dropped it in the water bowl, and then he did his jog around the house. If he's awake, he's moving. And he came back to the water bowl, and he stuck his face in the water bowl and pulled out the now soggy treat, and he put it in his mouth and sucked on it like a cough drop. It wasn't dementia. It was the teeth. Don't get me wrong here. That saw about a year for a dog is seven years for a person stuff. That's nonsense. But at nearly 16, Minet is about the equivalent of a man who is somewhere between 80 and 90 years old. He forgets stuff. He accelerates like when he's right next to the wall. He has a processing problem. You can be right in front of him and you can say hello or you reach out to pet him and he will literally stop, spread out his four legs like he's in a cartoon and look behind him. He's also a master of the double take. But otherwise, he is really smart and resourceful. And by accident, I found a bed that he loves like it was the womb. And he will sleep 12 hours or 14 hours some days and get up and have some water or come out and pee. But now he will get up and come out and talk to me in a very sweet voice for a few moments. And then he'll go back and nap for another couple of hours. And he will still bark when he's hungry. And the other day I gave him a plate of the ground up treats. And I swear he stopped, he sniffed them and he said, oh just like that and he happily devoured them bluntly i would pay a thousand dollars ten thousand dollars i don't know how much 
to get a full story of Minet's life before he arrived here. The Minet documentary. That understanding French thing is absolutely legit. On one walk last winter, we encountered no fewer than three groups of people speaking fluent French, and he bounded over to them and seemed to take comfort just hearing the language spoken conversationally. He does hydrate constantly. Awake, he is almost never seated and never still. If he knows he is doing twice the recommended number of steps for a geriatric dog, I wouldn't be a bit surprised. He will still flinch now and again when I pick him up because he can't see or really hear me coming, but he fell asleep in my arms the other day. His heart is in great shape. His metabolism is outstanding. His coat is rich and gorgeous and soft. He always walks quickly closer to a trot. He does zoomies. He moves. He eats a lot when he wants, sometimes twice as much as the other. Sometimes he'll just have a nibble for a day. And outside walking, on the grass, on the bench, he is the happiest dog on earth. And with no teeth in the way, his tongue now hangs out to his left. And if it's not silly to call the equivalent of a 90-year-old man cute, it is the cutest thing you have ever seen. And something else happens again and again, and it happens Saturday. I'm out there with Minet and Ted, and Ted has found girls on a blanket, and he's flirting with them. And Minet is standing back by me just enjoying the breeze, and one of the girls says, Are they twins? And I have to explain that Minet looks nice and young, but in fact, he is old enough to be Ted's great, 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 great grandfather. And every walk, every single walk with Minet ends with me feeling as if it were the first time I had thought this. And it ends with me saying to him out loud, it is a privilege to walk with you. Less sentimentally, he is a walking set of instructions. First off, dog people, do not be afraid of taking in a senior dog, even one who may not seem to have much time left. You might be surprised. There are also the instructions for dogs and man alike. Keep moving. Stay hydrated. Don't eat if you don't feel like it. Keep trying to make yourself better. That thing about you can't teach an old dog new tricks, that's nonsense. Learn a second language. And most importantly, if you have a dog and you think you understand the importance of dental care, you do not. I did not. After this thing with Minet, I brought the others in for checkups. Turned out Rose had advanced periodontal disease. We didn't know it. There were no symptoms. They took out 18 teeth. When she recovered, all her allergies vanished. Hell, after all this, I went to my dentist. I told him Minet's story and I said... Can you take a few of my teeth out? I'd like to be about 25% smarter. Unfortunately, I had had a 100% healthy checkup for the first time in my life. Happy anniversary, Minet. Thanks for finding me. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. 
I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just ahead, the things we do for art or for money. I had to explain this to a new doctor just last Friday. Yeah, yeah, I did fall off a cliff. Well, a high rock, just like you do while making a TV commercial. Things I promise not to tell next. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need you can help. Every dog has its day. Back to the New York pound and the everlasting nightmare there. They found Troubadour wandering in Morningside Park, and Lord knows what his story was. He's seven. He does not like having his legs and back touched, and this suggests abuse or something. But he still loves people, and he loves walks, and while he does not interact well with other dogs, he will do what you want in exchange for food and some gentle affection. And, of course, who's going to adopt a seven-year-old 60-pound dog? So he's on the kill list, so we need to get a rescue to save him. So we need pledges to help them do that. Because you never know what joy each dog might still enjoy and might still bring you. Look for Troubadour on my Twitter feeds and help if you can with a pledge or a retweet. I thank you and Troubadour thanks you. Number one story on the countdown and my favorite topic, me and things I promised not to tell. And it was this time of year in 1996 when my agent called me at ESPN. There's an ad agency in Santa Monica. They just called me. Would you like to do two commercials for Boston Market? I answered with profound indifference. Okay. Would you like to do two commercials for Boston Market for $250,000? I believe my next words were, well, I can't do them today, but sure. They faxed me the scripts. They're actually pretty funny. Very well done. I think you'll like them. I believe my next next words were, if I don't have to kill anybody in them, call them back and say yes and get the money. Since the idea was these ads would run on sports telecasts, most of them on ESPN, my yes got back to management at ESPN pretty quickly. You can't do these, one of the executives explained dismissively. We don't let anybody do commercials. I laughed. Every one of us has done the, uh, the This Is Sports Center commercials. Some of us have written the This Is Sports Center commercials. You don't even give us days off for making them, let alone give us money. This is money I don't have to ask you for. The executive shook his head. Those aren't commercials. Those are promotional announcements. They're in your contract. Nobody here does commercials. I said, Chris Berman has done a beer commercial in three out of the last five Super Bowls. My commercial is just for food. Well, he's Berman. I pointed out I went to high school with him, and I was the star of their most popular program, a little thing called Sports Center. TV Guide had just named us one of the top 10 shows on TV. Shows, not sports shows. Us and Seinfeld. Sorry. Well, now I got a little angry, which never happened to me at ESPN, and I went to my ace in the hole. Uh, my contract expires in like 10 months, and you know I intend to leave. And during those 10 months, you're going to pay me about $260,000. So Boston Market is going to pay me $250,000 for two days' work instead of 10 months' work. Plus, they're going to take me out first class to L.A. for a couple of days, and they're probably going to do some radio spots, and I'll make another twenty-five grand. So you're giving me a choice? Make, say, $275,000 in like five days for them, or make $260,000 here between now and next September when I'm planning on leaving anyway? If you make me choose between those two, which do you expect me to choose? The executive coughed. We'll get back to you. An hour later, he got back to me by phone. Okay, we see your point, but there are still two problems. We can't just let everybody do commercials. I said, well, you know, why don't you just let anybody who went to the high school that Berman and I went to do commercials? He did not laugh at that. Well, how about only your regular weekday sports center anchors get to do commercials? There was a grunt and a maybe. Then we got to the gist of the real problem. Here's the real problem. 
people on your show, they'll be resentful. And I said, why would they be resentful? Because the production assistants are expecting that they're going to get their own commercials too? And I said, how about this? The day I'm out there actually shooting the commercial, I will get Boston Market to like cater dinner for the show staff, even if I have to pay for it myself. There was a long silence. Would management be included in that? And can we get all the side dishes too? I swear to God. So off I flew at the beginning of December during a winter that had gone frigid in October in Bristol, Connecticut. The next thing I knew, I was on the beach in Malibu at Leo Carrillo State Park. The crew is complaining because it is raining lightly and only about 55 degrees to me, fresh from the hinterlands. And having not been back to L.A. since I had moved out in 1992, it's like I'm in Tahiti. And my agent was right. The scripts were funny and original. They were a send-up of the old Calvin Klein obsession perfume commercials. They're two extremely thin models, and they are filmed writhing in frustration on the beach, on the big rock outcroppings at Leo Carrillo State Park. She is supposed to say, emptiness. How can I fill this empty void of emptiness? They are in black and white, but I emerge from behind a rock or wherever. I'm in color. They are in black and white. And I say, when they say they don't know what to do about this emptiness, I say, eat something. I then sell the sandwich. Then it cuts to a shot of me walking them down the beach with my arm over each of their shoulders, telling them eating is a good thing. And who's wearing cologne or who likes sports or other stupid things like that for a quarter of a million dollars. Well, we start this at 8 a.m., and the producer and the director, John, say to me and the two models and the crew, look, this rain is just going to get heavier as the day goes on. So what we want to do is not take a break for lunch. We'll just shoot until, like, 2 p.m., and then you can have lunch or you can take your lunch with you, and you'll all get paid for a full day. And everybody agrees. The actress agrees, and she swears as she agrees. The actress is named Una, Una is from Chicago, and it will soon prove Una swears more than a longshoreman. This blanking cold can blank my blanking blank. To be fair, Una and the guy are dressed in Calvin Klein rags, and they are there, and they are from there, and they are freezing, while I am wearing a production company brand new suit and shoes, and to me it feels like it's Tahiti. We take a couple of hours where we do all the shots where I emerge from behind the rocks or go around the rocks or over the rocks or I look over the rocks. And the director finally says, okay, we got five good options. Let's set up for the walk down the beach with your arms around each other's shoulders. By now, it's noon or 1230. And as they move the cameras and the rain starts to move from a mist to like a light rain, two prop guys bring out rakes. And I'm sitting with the crew, and I've been asking them questions all morning in between takes about how this is all being arranged and made and lit. And I say, rakes? What do you need rakes for in a commercial? And they say, you'll see. And then each time me and Una and the guy walk down the beach and the director says, cut, we go back to the starting point. Now, out come two stagehands with rakes, and they rake the sand on the beach smooth. And I say, oh, footprints. So each time I walk down this damp beach with the rain just a little harder than it was the take before in my brand new dress shoes, what I'm basically doing is polishing the soles of these brand new shoes on damp sand. I mean, by the time the director John says we are done, these soles of these shoes are so shiny, I could go ice skating in these shoes. And John comes over and he says, listen, we got another half an hour. Can we go back and try a new way for you to appear on the rocks? I mean, can you can you climb rocks at all? And I say, yeah, actually, I'm, I'm surprisingly good at it. You wouldn't think so, but I can climb rocks. And he points to one rock outcropping on the beach. Maybe it's 18, 20 feet high. And he says, try to climb up that and go as high as you can. If there's nothing that'll support you, we'll forget it. And I try, and sure enough, I get up near the top, and there is a perfect little shelf in the rock that I can comfortably stand on. And the director points the camera up, and he says, oh, damn, the angle's too tough. I can't swing the camera down fast enough for when you say eat something so I can refocus on the models. It won't work. Is there anything lower on the rock where you could stand? Can you come down at all? 
And I said, I think so. I think I can come down a little bit. Well, little did I know. Sure enough, maybe nine, ten feet from the beach, up in the sky, there is another little foothold on this rock outcropping. It is not big enough for me to put both my feet on it, but I say, if you don't mind me holding on to the rock as I say eat something, I can do it from here. And the director says, okay, let's try it. And I climb down the rock, and he's moving the camera, and I put my left foot on this flat part, which is nine or ten feet up from the beach, and for a couple of seconds, everything is fine. I'm good. And that's when I feel that my left shoe, my brand new left shoe, straight from the Floorshine catalog, bright and shiny, and now having been polished by four hours of walking up and down on a wet beach, complete with two guys there to rake the beach and make sure it is as shiny as it possibly can be, my left shoe, slipperier than a diamond, is now moving of its own accord. I'm holding. I'm doing a good rock climbing job, but the shoe, the shoe is not holding. Hey, I say with some alarm, I'm about to fall off. I hit the sand no more than five seconds later. So that's about a 16 foot drop from my head to the beach. And for weeks, for years, still to this day, it has amazed me more than anything else that happened. It has amazed me how much went through my mind before I crashed. In fact, before I actually fell. I know I did a quick height calculation. Yeah, 15, 16 feet. I recognized that the outcropping was so vertical that I was unlikely to hit any of the rock on the way down. But just the same, I remembered that the rocks continued under the sand, see? I took two years of geology. And this was going to be a hard landing, more amazingly than all that, though, I had taken judo as a kid. I hated every minute of judo. 1965, 1966, so 26 and 27 years before we shot this commercial. I was in the studio, the judo studio in White Plains, New York, the day of the 1965 Northeast Blackout. And the only happy memory of the entire judo experience I had was when our instructor, Bob DeRocher, locked us in the dojo that had been converted from a store that had a front door that was set in several feet from the street so they could put display cases up. And now it's pitch black, so he went out and got his Volkswagen Carmen Ghia, drove it up over the sidewalk into that set-in entryway of this converted storefront. He put his high beams on. He flooded the dojo with enough light that we kids could change out of our judo stuff and back into our regular clothes and wait for our parents to come get us. He did a great job. I didn't like the judo so much, but his blackout operations practice was superb. So now, with all of this having gone through my head in a second, I began to fall, and everything else from that year of once-a-week judo classes comes back to me. Relax as you drop. The more of your body that hits, the less you'll get hurt. Hands protect the head. Drop like a sack of sand. I did not hit the sand, per se. I kind of splattered on my left side. Swap. As I rolled over onto my back and took a breath and sat up, of all people, Una was the first to race over to me. You want some blank and tea? I said, uh, no, no thanks. Let me, let me see if I'm dead. The grips tried to help me to my feet, but I felt some very sharp pain that which suggested we should slow down. The problem was, though, even if I needed an ambulance, there was no way to get one down to where we were shooting. As that rock outcropping that I had just fallen from suggested, I like to call it a cliff every now and again, Leo Carrillo State Park had a real cliff in it and a flight of stairs. I mean, 100 steps, 200 steps up to Pacific Coast Highway and a park. Sure enough, I was able to stand, but I couldn't move easily. Everything hurt. So the two biggest members of the crew let me drape my arms over their shoulders exactly the way I had draped my arms over their shoulders of the models during the beach shot. I stopped for a second. Hey, Ona, you sure you don't want to Franken-carry me up the stairs? She said with genuine sincerity, now that's blank and funny. 
Seemed to me like it took about a month to get up those stairs. I assumed there would be an ambulance waiting by this point. Instead, there was a park ranger. This is a state park. I have to see you first. Then I have to call the fire department. I said, well, this pain on my side here, this feels like fire, but I don't think it's actually fire. He called the fire department. They showed up. They assessed me. They called the ambulance. At some point, probably when I was being half dragged up the steps, something happened on the impact side. If I now tried to lower my left arm from way above my head, I got severe shooting, burning pain from my left armpit to about my left knee. Cleverly, I figured out not to do that. Keep your left arm above your head and it won't hurt. I used the restroom in the ranger station. There was no blood, so no kidney damage. I'm okay. It does, however, hurt and something could be broken. Now I go back outside, my arm above my head, like I'm signaling for a cab on the streets of New York City. And the ambulance shows up and the EMTs tell me to get on their gurney. And I said, I I can't. I can't lower my arm unless I want excruciating pain. I can't move my arm. I have to stay in this position looking like, like a flamenco dancer. But I said, listen, can you lock the wheels on this gurney? And they said, sure we can. Of course we can. And I said, just lock the wheels and I'll just back up onto the end of it and I'll fall backwards. And it worked. And so with my left arm still extended over my head, they loaded me into the ambulance. Apparently when I fell from that rock or cliff, as I call it, it looked like I had been shot. 50, 60 people on a commercial crew. The shooting day is over. They have missed lunch. There is a very nice catered lunch sitting there. And they told me later that everybody was so disturbed by what happened to me that only three people even took something to go. And no, the director was not filming as I fell, sadly. So we hit every pothole on Pacific Coast Highway on the trip from the beach to the hospital. Oh, ah, oh. I call my agent from my cell phone. She laughed. I called ESPN, actually to check on the catered dinner. Oh, what's new? Oh, I fell off a cliff shooting the commercial. They laughed. And I'm lying there in the emergency room waiting for x-rays when my cell phone rings again. And I reach into my left pocket and I had the phone halfway to my ear when I realized my left side does not hurt anymore. At all. It does not hurt at all. Well, that was a quick recovery. I sat up. My left side felt fine. In fact, it felt great. And a nurse came over and suggested I should lie back down again. I said, why? Somehow I got better on the trip from all the potholes and just lying here. In fact, I feel great. Did you guys remove my left leg while I wasn't looking? Did you replace it with the left leg that I had when I was 12? Because I could hop back to Connecticut on my left leg right now and just cancel the flight. She laughed. She said, no. What I was feeling would be the morphine they gave me so they could twist me around and take the x-rays they needed. And I said, please never, ever give me any more of that ever again. Thank you. My judo flashback, as it turned out, had done the job. I had broken nothing. The ER doctor complimented me on my fall, and he said I probably had six or eight different sprains on my left side. It would hurt, but it would keep getting better, and I'd be able to make my flight home the day after next. He was completely right, although I now found uh, 25 years later that it's beginning to hurt like I just fell off the cliff. Anyway, I went back to the hotel. I ate well. I slept well. I managed to walk around with the help of a cane, and I went back for day two of the commercial shoot. This one is in a mansion in Pasadena, a room teeming full of unas lying on the floor. They're photographed through chandeliers. They're lazy, rich kids who also need to be told to eat something. I arrived and walked into applause from the crew, and I delivered a well-rehearsed line. And now for my next trick which is when the director, John, came over and apologized, and he said he thought this entry into shot for me would be way easier. What I had to do was lie on the floor, then sit up and deliver the line, eat something. If you can sit up, he said, that is. If, if you can't, we, we can do something else. Can you sit up? And I thought about it, and I rubbed my lower back, and I said, based on the day so far, yeah, I could, but probably only six or seven times. And, and I, I said, well, I, I can sit up. It's clear to me 
one of those bad sprains was in the muscles somewhere of my lower back. And if I try to lay back down, I lose control. I'll just crash back to the floor. That actually happened getting out of bed this morning. So after each take, the same two guys who had walked me up the stairs after I fell at the beach gently held my arms and shoulders and lowered me back to lying on the floor. We got what we needed. I went back to the hotel. I had dinner with some friends. The next day I was a little sore, but perfectly fine to get back on the plane east. And sure enough, only time ever I had a west to east tailwind. The flight from LAX to Newark took three hours and 48 minutes. We traversed the country like a dart shot from a gun or an Olbermann falling from a rock outcropping. Oh, by the way, the commercial was an immediate success, unlike any that Boston Market had ever done before. In those days, they were packed each night for dinner at every location, selling half chickens and full meals with potatoes and salads, and they were getting an average of $12 out of every customer. The rest of the day, the place was empty. The idea behind my commercials, they were designed to bring in a lunch crowd, a sandwich and a soda and a bag of chips for $4. Soon they were swamped at lunchtime. Boston Market ordered three more commercials, these to be shot in a studio in New York. They offered me 50 grand a day. An entire new career vista was opening in front of me. I was, for a week or two in early 1997, the most successful male commercial actor in the country. We shot those three spots. I interrupted a grunge concert to shout, eat something at the band, and then I got carried off by the crowd in a mosh pit. And I interrupted a Romeo soap opera surgeon coming on to his nurse by rising from the operating table to shout, eat something. And then we did something with ball players at the stadium on Randall's Island, and I remember nothing of that because unlike the first two, they never edited the film because that's when it happened. Their equivalent of falling off the cliff I will confess it had not occurred to me. Then again, I did not own Boston Market. I did not work for their marketing department. I did not run the ad agency they employed. But none of them anticipated it either. After the first few weeks of giddy glee about the lunch crowds, I had brought them. Somebody noticed something unfortunate and unexpected. Basically, for every $4 lunch they were now selling, they were selling one fewer $12 dinner. They had not gained any new customers. They had just managed to get their customers to each spend $8 less. These very well-made, very memorable commercials worked very, very well. And the problem with that was each time they did work, it cost Boston Market $8. By the end of 1997, Boston Market was something like $900 million in debt, it had filed for bankruptcy, and it had been taken over by McDonald's. On the other hand, I got my money, and in the 25 years plus since, Boston Market has not once used a celebrity endorser to try to sell their food. Oh, and there was one other positive outcome. I'm actually very proud of this. The ad agency got the award in question. I did not, so I don't know which group gave it to us. But that Eat Something campaign actually won an award because somehow my shouting Eat Something at Una and the other waif-thin models, somehow that cut through to at least some victims of eating disorders. The Boston Market Eat Something ad campaign for which I fell off a cliff. Okay, a rock outcropping for which I fell off a rock outcropping, got an award from a National Bulimia Association. I've done all the damage I can do here. Countdown has come to you from the Vin Scully studio at the world headquarters of the Olderman Broadcasting Empire in New York. Here are the credits. Most of the music was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown musical directors. 
All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. Produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend Jonathan Banks from Breaking Bad. Everything else is pretty much my fault. That's Countdown for this, the 888th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Don't forget, we're on a roll. Keep arresting him while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is, ooh, arraignment day. Tomorrow, till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.